This week on Merchants of Change, we talk with one of Cape Cod's finest, Brian Kolb. Brian played hockey at the College of the Holy Cross before a quick cup of coffee in the Federal League. Brian is a good friend and a seasoned sales pro who currently is selling software for Tidelift. Tidelift helps organizations effectively manage the open source behind modern applications. Here he is, Brian Cole. I'm J.R. Butler, co-founder of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes into being a professional technology salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change. What's up, kid? How we doing? Brian Cole. What's happening? Nice to see you, fellas. <laughs> this is a good one today. This is awesome. This is awesome. <laughs> we, we were just talking before we recorded, John. I'm like, probably 98% of the stories that me and Brian have together aren't going to make this this episode. So we're going to keep it <laughs> PG-13, all right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, so Brian, thank you so much for joining. It's weird to call you Brian. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've had a chance to listen to a few of the episodes, right? We're, we're talking... We're talking, the audience we're talking to is really like athletes transitioning into sales or considering transitioning into sales. And, and most of the people we've talked to are all former athletes. And we like to start, start in the sports, the sports background. So um, you're a Cape Cod kid. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience growing up playing sports. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me on. I think it's... Um... You know, growing up, I don't think uh, one sport, two sports, three sports. I lived in a large neighborhood where everyone was playing everything. Um, you know, so from baseball, soccer, football, lacrosse, uh, pretty much did it all um, up until high school, right? And so then you had to kind of narrow it down, and um, it ended up being soccer, hockey, lacrosse, and then eventually hockey in college. But uh, on the way, you get to meet uh, – a lot of good people, a lot of good friends, a lot of relationships built over those times. And I don't know, I, I kind of liked playing more than one sport, more than just specializing in, in one, right? Because by the time you get sick of one season or sick of some people, you're on to a new team and new friends and new experiences. So uh, it definitely shaped me, who I was growing up, made me competitive and obviously translated well to the to the work world. What are some of your favorite memories from playing all those sports growing up? Yeah, I think... Uh, I think the first time traveling with a team, like staying overnight in a hotel, right? You got the knee hockey in the hallways all night when the dads are out boozing. Unreal. And then, you know, getting ready to get back in and jump in the pool as soon as you're back. You know, the staying up all night playing video games. That was a lot of fun. And then, you know, as you get older, I think in high school, I think JR was on the receiving end of one of the better experiences for me. Um, you know, Tabor, we were... We were kind of an underdog type scenario playing Cushing, but uh, we ended up pulling that off, making it to the finals. Unfortunately, we lost to Jonathan Quick and the Avon Old Farms, but that was my first real glimpse of um, playing what I knew half that team was probably going to be either in the AHL or NHL at some point, but that was the first time where I think I realized that um, maybe I could keep up and, and play with the big boys. Yeah, I, I I was super excited when I got to Holy Cross and found out there was a kid from Tabor on the team. Like, just really, really excited to have that conversation. <laughs> well, do, do you remember when we first met, Jr. And uh, you were playing baseball at Tabor. Yeah, that's right. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. I, and I love your comment about multiple sports, dude. There's there's so much specialization now. I get to follow you and your and your and your boys on Instagram and seeing how like how multifaceted their their athletic careers are becoming i can see that that's that's going down a generation i think that's unreal yeah i appreciate it yeah it's fun it's you see a lot of yourself and your kids the good and the bad but uh luckily my old my oldest is uh very competitive in the sports and right now we're just it's a lot of basketball and, and flag football which is great yep yep so keeping it in the guardrails Cobra, his uh, favorite memory from Holy Cross days. <laughs> I mean, I mean, on the ice, it's obviously the Minnesota thing, right? When we upset Minnesota, that was 
I think for a lot of us, we kind of knew it was our pinnacle or our peak, but I think off the ice, um, it had to be fresh mirror. I think when we all thought we were going to end up doing that run, like the, the campus run and with, with Coskrin and Sully and McKay and all of a sudden we're all, we're all mad and bitching that I think it was Sully wasn't there and he was skipping out. And as we start running, he comes out in a speedo on rollerblades or roller skates, the pictures of beer. Let's go, boys. And we had ourselves a day. We almost collapsed 33 Caro that day. <laughs> so that was that was definitely like the first. I was like, holy shit, welcome to college. Like, that was a blast. That was an unreal day. That <laughs> was. That's, uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I used to be jealous of you guys on the hockey team, you know. Like, I'm over here at the football team. And I don't know. We didn't, we didn't even come close to what you guys had. And then the Minnesota win, like, it's just... It's pretty incredible, but I feel like as as Jr. mentioned, you guys talk about multiple sports at Holy Cross. In our day, I think we had a great relationship with every sports team. You know, like I thought that was a little bit unique for us. Usually, the lacrosse team doesn't like the hockey team or the football team, but I don't know. I felt like with us, it was always kind of we're all hanging on in Carroll or Cambridge. Yeah, except for a couple of the ba- I'm sure the baseball guys would have a different opinion about me, but um, that was that's all right. <laughs> Uh, cool. Who, other than me, obviously, who 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 is a couple of your favorite your favorite teammates? Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm best friends with Benny Conway, Cheddar. Um, yeah, Cheddar Ben uh, have been since day one. I think he's really the one that kind of taught me the how it works to be an athlete there and what's expected out of you, and showed me some of the shortcuts that uh, you know Coach Pearl probably. So I noticed that I picked up on pretty quickly there. Um, but um, in the leadership there, I think McGregor and Napa Fernand and Pierre were the first real solid captains I think I had playing sports where um, what they said and, and what they did, one, you know, was more vocal than the other. But um, they were definitely great leaders. And they, obviously what we accomplished as a team that year was incredible. But um, it was in, in our class, JR, you know, we there was a lot of us. So. Um, I think the relationships kind of evolved over time. I'm, I'm a little bit closer with some of the older guys in the team still now, where I know my class is pretty close or our class is pretty close. Um, and I think that just happens for, you know, I, I obviously didn't play senior year for, for some personal reasons. Uh, I lost a few of my friends, um, going into spring. That's difficult. And I still, I still think about it today. Um, but then again, like, even though I don't hang out with those guys all the time or we're not talking consistent basis, when I need them, they're there, you know, Perfect example is when, um, you know, maybe five or six years ago, my father had uh, a pretty serious brain injury, um, and he was going in for brain surgery. And it just so happened that Cal Saint Denis uh, knew the, the the surgeon pretty well, and we were having a hard time talking with the doctor. And Cal like went straight from our golf tournament there straight to the hospital, got the introduction done, and it was it was just a big deal at the time. It just shows how close these guys are to one another. Yeah, well, once a teammate, always a teammate, I think. It's 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 right. wild, especially when you go through the shared experience that we all had because that was such a special such a special experience. Like, I just think so fondly of those mm-hmm. days. And, and I think, you know, it had a lot of characteristics of, like, any winning team, right? Like, we were all so close. We spent so much time together. We knew so much about each other, probably too much, mm-hmm. um, and it was just unreal. Um, so I'd love to get into again. We've really never talked about this, so so I'm really excited to talk about the transition. Um, I think, like, I would love to know how did you end up in sales? Yeah, so great question. I think at Holy Cross, right? We didn't really have a business major per se, right? So. Um, you know, there's economics, but that really wasn't business. And and so I was a psychology major and it naturally led the competitiveness and sort of the, the learning about how people do things the way they do things or sales is kind of a natural, um, transition based on my personality. I, I was pretty, it was pretty clear that a lot of our teammates were going to go into medical device sales. I don't, I don't think that was right for me at the time per se. So I went in the financial world like everyone else, right? So I worked for Merrill Lynch as a financial advisor. Probably 2008 was probably the worst fucking year to ever do that. So I think, I think like, yep. <laughs> excuse me, two weeks into work, I'm like sitting in my terminal and I'm like, oh, Bank of America just bought us. Turn to my boss. He's like, what? I'm like, oh God, here we go. So that ended quickly. <laughs> that ended pretty quickly. 
Like, legit, some woman came in, just slipped a piece of paper to the whole office and just says, yeah, you're, you're done today. You're terminated. And I was like, okay. Luckily, one guy still had the company card. So we went to Buff's Pub down Newton's, ran up a big tab <laughs> there. But um, <laughs> So it took a few years after that to really figure it out. I think uh, it actually was a, was a friend that I grew up with that I heard um, bought a house at like 25 years old. And I was like, you know, how do you do that? And so always in software sales. So um, it was right around the time the iPhone kind of came out too, where I was kind of fidgeting around with apps and whatnot and uh, came across this company called CallMiner. They did speech analytics. So basically like, you know, could transcribe this conversation we're having now and analyze it. And it was more for customer service for companies. But that was the first time I kind of heard of such a thing. And so I started at the bottom as a BDR, worked my way up and, um, kind of found my specialization in uh, helping, you know, Series A, Series B type companies uh, where they have sort of maybe one mil to five mil in revenue and, and they really want to hit that hyper growth and, and, and sort of create those repetitive processes. So I've done that for like seven startups now. Dude, it's so funny, Cole, to hear you explain that because I was the same same boat. I'm like economics, you know, I'm, I go get a job at a bank. They're like, hey, uh, kid, do you want to? analyze some mortgage-backed securities that are kind of questionable. And I'm like, sure. And then it's like 2008 and no one's hiring. I'm just like, well, this looks bad. Like all this data looks real bad. They're like, this is real bad. And then some some kids like I knew were talking and they're like, you know, so-and-so bought a condo and just bought a Jeep. And I'm like, I'm like, what? Like, how do they buy a condo? Like we're like young, you know, like we're not making money. I'm like, why do they do software sales? So it's funny how like, we go to Holy Cross, you know, great school. And then we just, somebody tells us, oh yeah, software sales. Like that's, that's really what happened. I think with a lot of people, it still does today. It's crazy. It is. It is. Uh, I don't think people like we get it because we went through it. I, it's, it's hard for people to really understand what, what coming out of college in 2008 was like, if you, if you didn't do it, I don't think people quite appreciate like right now we're in a recession. Um, it's nowhere, it's not like back then, like people were jumping out of buildings in, in New York city. Like it was a bloodbath. And I think it, 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 it makes us like a really special and unique kind of almost like a, like a micro generation of, you know, we, we understand everything before the iPhone. Cause we, you know, Cole, I'm sure you were like me calling 1-800-COLLECT on a pay on a pay phone after <laughs> hockey practice and being like practice is done mom pick me up before she had to pay for it right <laughs> Absolutely. but then we also had like facebook junior and senior year so there's like stuff on the internet that's going to prevent us from running from president someday so like we get both experiences um what would be your like biggest piece of advice for an athlete that's listening to this that's about to transition out of the athletic world into civilian life yeah i think it's um you know first it, it terms of choosing your company and and sort of the products or like getting into sales you gotta uh, i think you realize one going to work for someone that has your best interest at stake or someone that's going to take you under their wing and kind of show you the ropes is pretty important um when you first get started because there's a lot it's like drinking through a fire hose right I, there's so many applications or or it's sales software that you need to get accustomed to and, and then find your sort of your cadence and, and, and what you're selling. Um, and what I mean is it, 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 there's no silver bullet when you go company to company, right? I think the hard work consistency is there, but, um, you know, I've had some success with emails. I've had some success with phone calls and, and usually it's a, the blending of a few, but if someone just getting started, it's, um, be open, uh, be open-minded and, and really see what others are doing around you, the more experienced reps. Um, and you'll kind of find your own, own way there by pretty much failure, right? I think it's maybe you don't fail, but you learn at that at, at that pace. But um, it's not easy. So it's, it's there's a lot of no's to get that yes, and it can be frustrating. So just make sure you have that attitude going in that, um, you know, it is lucrative. We do get paid a lot when things go well, but there's a reason why <laughs> there's you're dealing with a lot of failure and, and skepticism when you're trying to reach out to these people. And from 2008 till now, it's, it's insanely hard to get someone on the other end to speak with you live. Um, it's a lot different. You used to be able to call people's, you know, desk phones and 
pretty much non-existent now. So, um, yeah, I would say just have a thick skin and, and find the right mentor. I think that's great advice, Colton. Uh, going back to JR's point about the 1-800-COLLECTS, like our, our age group, right, we have a little bit of different skills um, than other people. I still remember not even 1-800-COLLECTS, but I used to walk around my neighborhood and knock on doors and be like, hey, is Mike home? Like, if you did that today, like, it'd be a serious problem. Exactly. The ring doorbell goes off and you're on the neighborhood, you know, Facebook group. Who is this guy asking for money? Yeah, but, but it's, know. it's a good reminder to stay open minded in sales because even now all the technologies we're using in sales today weren't available in 2008, 2009. It's just constantly, constantly evolving. Um, I got a question for you. So let's say, you know, some of our listeners come to you. One of them comes to you and says, Hey, Brian, I got three job offers on the table. Like the OTE is this, the salary, the base is this, you know, this one has good benefits. I get my contact lenses for free. Like what are some of the factors that you would kind of consider most important when looking at a job offer? If you're fresh starting over as a BDR. Yeah, I think. You're going into sales. I mean, money should be the most important thing driving you or you wouldn't be in sales. But um, so I always look at the OTE, but the upside, right? Like how much is this company going to allow you to grow in your role? And, you know, not oftentimes put guardrails in on like how much you can earn. It should be, you know, un unlimited cap, right? And I think what you balance with that, though, is, again, you know, the reputation of the company you're going to. Um do your homework on the company itself. Ask around. I think everyone at this point, you know, especially our networks, um, might probably know someone um, that's either been there or has a friend that's worked there. But do your homework, not only on the product and the company, but the people you're going to be working for. Uh, you know, ask the reps. You know, how many of them have achieved quota in the last quarter or two? What's the turnover like? Um, ultimately, money is important, but I think when you're just starting as a BDR. Knowing that you have the potential to earn as hard as you work, that that's probably what you want to look for when you first start get going is making sure you're comfortable with, uh, you know, the cash flow they're going to offer you for your base. And then knowing that based on either bonuses or commission that you have that upside without any cap. And I think a lot of companies do that now. Um, the more money you make, the more money the company makes, everyone wins. Do you have an uh, opinion for BDR specifically on in office or remote? Like, like, what are your thoughts on that? That's a huge, by the way, as you can imagine, this generation coming out of college yeah. now, they're, they're almost picking technology sales because of the flexibility. And I obviously have my own opinion, if you can't tell. What is your, what is your thought on like remote versus in office for that first role? Uh, first role, I think you should be, it would be nice if you'd be in an office because you, there's nothing like hearing that guy across the cube from you or, you know, down the hall, like, they're pounding the phones or you hear the success they're having or failures they're having. You can hear them do their pitch and kind of use it to your own, but that's the fastest way you're going to learn. I think listening to these zoom calls, I mean, it could be, it could be frustrating, right? You don't get a lot of people just read the transcripts. You don't get the tone. Um, but there's nothing like in person hearing everyone kind of doing the same thing. Like my first job was a boiler room. I was legit in, in New York's, uh, I was in Long Island and I was calling um, doctors uh, at ERs. I'd like that, just like you see in uh, Boiler Room, the yeah. movie. I had a deaf stack of cards, had two phones. As soon as I got a guy on the phone, I had to give it to my, the senior rep. And then, but I learned very quickly as there was 10 of us doing it at the same time what works, what doesn't work. Uh, and then you adapt your own style. Um, hybrid role, I think it's tough for that role. I think everyone's trying to do it, but it's, I've seen, and this is why I love what you guys are doing with the shift group is training these guys right. I think that these BDRs are just hitting these MBOs to get paid and then hiding. Um, and they get away with a lot these days. And, um, the kind of role I'm at now, I'm on to my third BDR from, cause of turnover. Yeah. Um, you know, like, so it's hard to train them one on one without, you know, one, hurting their feelings sometimes. Um, and two, it's, they're only going off of metrics they see in Salesforce or something. They're not seeing like the work that really goes into that. Um, who's successful and who's not. So some of them pick up bad habits, but if you're not there every day, the training's once a quarter usually for us. So, um, you can pick up a lot of bad habits between, you know, between trainings. Yeah. I, I, I love that. 
Um, I, I think, listen, I think flexibility is a good reason to, if you like autonomy and you eventually want to get to the point where you can golf on a Wednesday at one o'clock in the morning, one o'clock in the afternoon, then yeah, technology sales is a great career track, but they need to understand that that, that flexibility and that autonomy is learned, is earned, right? Like mm. I, I was tied, like you said, I was tied to two phones for two years before I ever got the right to go get a haircut on a, on an afternoon, on a weekday, right? Like it's, you got to get there. And I think there's a little bit of entitlement about the flexibility earlier on in your career. Um, the same in sports, you, JR. Yeah. Not to yeah. cut you off, but it's the same in sports. Like I remember I was playing like, uh, JV baseball and I think I had a home run and untucked my jersey, like round in second base to showboat a little bit. And my coach was like, what the hell are you doing? You know, like, <laughs> but, you know, and then, like I was like, well, I saw so-and-so do it, you know, like he's a captain, you know, yeah. like he can do whatever he wants. He's yeah, you know, all league. I'm like, all right. Yeah. You got to wait a little bit until I can showboat. <laughs> it's the same in sales. You can't really like until you can prove that you can have the double phones and make all these calls. You can't really. Just start taking midweek, you know, time off for yourself, right? Like that—that's not how it works. No, no way. Yeah, and to expand on that is like what I see a lot is BDRs now can get like they'll set up a meeting for you, but you get on the call and there's been no in-depth discussion with you know the, or qualifying these people, um, and so you get on the phone. They're like, "Well, I got got you the meeting," and I'm like, "Well, that's fine. I mean, you hit your metric per se." But a real BDR, you know, you want to get as close to doing what an AE can do on that first call as possible. So take it as far down the sales cycle as you can before you turn it over. You're not just setting some guy up saying, or woman being like, hey, um, yeah, I just took your call, but, uh, you know, I know nothing about your company. I know nothing about your product. That's what I see a lot today. Well, how, would you like, coach, how would you coach a BDR code, like to, to work better with the AE and, and build that like foundation? Yeah, you got to have a common language, right? Like communication's key. And I think, you know, I, I, I know our company, we're strong on the medic. Yeah. I don't know if you guys know medic we at do, all. Yeah. yeah. Very well. So we, yeah. So we've, we've kind of adopted that just to see if we can have some, um, you know, everyone on the same page as we're, as we start talking about accounts and, um, you know, uh, going through the sales cycle where we're at. And it's important if you can't answer, you know, Who's the economic buyer? Like, you know, what is, what's the decision process look like? Like, you know, who's involved? What are the metrics? You know, like, I, I know I'm just saying what medic is, but to that extent, I think that's really helped. Like when I talk to my BDR, I'm like, get as much information as that as possible. I know you're not going to get it all, but like, that's, that should be your goal. And then like, I'll fill in the blanks on the next call or as we move through the sales cycle, but like, you should keep those questions in mind. Well, one of the questions we always ask is like, what's the advice you would give to a BDR that wants to get into a closing role? And I think you just hit it. It's like, do as much of the closing role as you can before you have the closing role. If you can qualify the crap out of a company and like make sure, like you said, you're at, you're at power, right? You're at that, or at least you have a path to the economic buyer. You've, you've helped the customer identify a pain that like you guys solve, right? And, and you, you can understand like, how that pain is showing up from like a metrics perspective, you're only, you're only like two or three steps away, like from closing, being able to close a deal, you're going to get that AE role a lot faster versus the, the kid who's just set meetings because they have this, the right title on LinkedIn. Right. 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 And you nailed that. I mean, BDR is, I think I, I pretty much forced my boss to have to give me a rate or like a promotion Same. because I was just doing so much of it. And I was like, listen, like, why am I going to turn this over? The deal's done, you know, and, and you can't do that for every product. But, right. you know, I've worked at, you know, transactional sales at a company called Rapid Miner to more obviously like selling an ideology of doing data science at Data Robot to Anaconda, you're checking a box for using open, you know, so I've been kind of been in all sort of forms of or, or different styles of selling, but. I always encourage my BDR, go as far as you can. Don't, you know, if you need help, I'm there for you. But, uh, and I think that's important that your BDR knows that the AE trusts you. Um, and if they don't, they're going to ask the right questions and to just take it as far as you feel comfortable. But your goal should be take it as far as you can each the time. Quality is huge too, Cole. Like what you're saying is like mm -hmm. quantity. Yeah, sure. You got the most meetings every month on your team. Right. But like, if if you're a BDR out there listening, or if you're becoming a BDR soon, you know you can set up a meeting with the 
the security guard at the company, right? And and that counts as a meeting. But if you can set it up with somebody who has some voice at the company and you can qualify it a little better, it's great for you. It's great for a deal, but it's it's really impactful for the AE. And they're going to start to notice and they're going to say, wow, this BDR really can set quality meetings. And like you said, I was similar. They were kind of like pulled me out of the role. They were like, you're done, you're done doing that. You're doing the next role. Like it was just like that obvious. So that's, that's it. We haven't really had somebody talk about getting quality meetings. A lot of people talk about hitting your numbers a lot, but I think that's an important thing. Yeah. Yeah. And you also get, I think you gave great advice to the, the new AEs because we, fortunately, we, we work with such talented, talented kids and hardworking and competitive kids that a lot of them get promoted pretty quickly, right? We've had a kid get, go from BDR to AE in the second quarter at like a, at a large ASP's complex cybersecurity company, right? Like he's going from making cold calls for 90 days to closing $100,000 deals. And he was fortunate because he just did the BDR job. So he was working really well with the, with the BDRs. But what you said about like, give them a little bit of, you know, almost like give them some room to, to sink a little bit and, but be there Mm -hmm. for them when they need your help. Like, I think that, that's a great AE BDR relationship where you're letting the BDR do a little bit more. You're not making them do your like, you know, your your hard work that you don't want to do, your busy work, but you're letting them actually do some of your job in a way not because you don't want to do it because you're trying to get them to be better. I love that. Yeah, and it's the same thing for AEs with solution architects, right? Or sales engineers, right? Like you got to be dependent upon them a lot of times for a lot of the technical stuff. But as my role is, or my job should be to learn as much as that as possible and to take that as far as possible in the sales cycle too, with the technical questions, and then have my SE help me when I need it. So um, it goes both ways. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, it gives you credibility with the customer when you're, when they ask you a, a fairly technical question and you're a sales guy and you can actually answer it. Um, or you can ask a really specific technical question. They're like, all right, this kid, this kid gives a shit, right? Like that's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, moving over to sales leadership, right? Huge part of the job. It's one of the things I think why athletes are successful in sales is because they're used to the hierarchy of a coach and a captain and, you know, having a leader and having a mentor. What you've seen a lot of sales leadership, uh, Cole, what, what do you think great sales leadership looks like? And how do you think athletes specifically want to be managed? Yeah, I think uh, it's a good question. I think it goes back to what we first started talking about with choosing a company, right? Choosing your boss and choosing your manager is just as important. Um, and I've been lucky. I've worked for the same um, sort of CRO, VP of sales, SVP. This is my fifth company with them, or it might be even six. Um, and in between companies or roles, I've had other managers come in. Um, and it even, it just reinforced what I look for in a boss. And that's someone that's going to give me the autonomy that I need, um, you know, to do what I want to do. Obviously we all know I love golf, um, but you can't play golf year round where we live. So I, I sort of weight my work differently than probably the typical AE or, or someone that doesn't play golf or just doesn't live in New England. Um, so having that flexibility, but also someone that's going to, you feel like is sitting on the same side as the table as you, right? Like. I'm not sort of a, 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 I don't like people managers per se, someone that's going to look at your calendar and, 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 you know, judge you off that. I think ultimately um, you're in sales, you got to close deals, you got to hit numbers. Um, and that's first important, right? And as long as you're doing that, a manager should ask you, hey, what do you need um, to do your job well? Uh, there's other times where like the more the people manager and this, and this, I have seen AEs like, need this type of person too is hey i like uh, you know they're not organized but they need to be able to be have task oriented like filled days right like i want you to spend two hours blocking off sourcing names doing that and those types of managers although not for me do help a lot of people out but it's um i think the best manager is one that's going to help you close a deal rather than judge you if you don't close a deal um you know they don't ask, oh, well, you, what went wrong per se? They're, they're, you know, you want someone saying, well, what can we do better? Where do you think it, we dropped the ball? And they do some of that homework with you um, rather than someone just looking from the outside, looking in on, on a sales cycle that goes wrong and says, well, told you, should it, you know, so I've had both. So I think you want someone that feels like they, they, they want, they're there for you. They're there to help and they're not just there to, 
um, you're treated as a number. And if you don't hit your number, you're gone. Um, I like someone to be kind of emotionally invested in their age. That's cool. That's cool. I didn't know you had the same uh, CRO or SVP for five to six companies. That's pretty cool. You don't, you don't hear about that too much, but you do, you know, you kind of follow people around and work for the, if you like working for somebody at one company, it's going to translate. Uh, yeah. And his name is John Shepard. And he was, he's actually, um, I applied to, this is like going, trying to get out of my first uh, role as a BDR inside sales rep. They, they actually outsourced my platform. Um, I was able to sell the cloud platform and they outsourced it to consultants. And so I was looking to get back in a closing role. Um, you know, I, I interviewed for this job. They said, you know, uh, my, my requirements were too much at the time. But four months later, this guy calls me and said, come on in. Let's, you know, I, I love athletes. He played tennis himself at uh, Vanderbilt. Um, so he, he was an athlete and um, he kind of took me under his wing, trained me and, and, and sort of I've trusted him. Um, and yeah, so this is, I think, six companies have been together. We've both done like U.S. based companies. We've done um, a couple companies in Israel together, uh, which are obviously a different world. I'm not sure if you guys have ever worked for Tur Turbo, Israeli companies. Turbo was Israeli founders. So you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, <it's, laughs> I just, you just, you know, you, you live, you learn. I've seen a lot of them. And I, unfortunately, like, I don't, you always have to deal with the, oh, well, look how many companies you've worked at. But I, I said, well, it means, you know, if I'm in it for a Series A, Series B company, and I'm only there for a year to 18 months, well, that's what I specialize in right now. You know, I, I got them either to a goal that they wanted to be at, and now I wanted to go chase and do it for someone else because that's what I like to do. Or, you know, like it's very hard, as you know, in startups. I mean, 12 months is like five years at like a big corporation. So um, there's always constant change, constant turnover at the executive level, typically. I mean, I've been at two companies where the CEO has been either stepped down or let go, and you just know what happens, right? There's a new CEO is going to bring in their team, bring in their top sales guy. Uh, so it's you got to deal with the highs and the lows. So, Cole, I think a big thing about sales is having your your first line boss be you know someone you can trust. Is there is there a way for you, or how can a rep right now who's interviewing for a job, how can they? figure out whether or not they enjoy working for their boss or the person they're interviewing with during the interview. Yeah, I think it one, I think it takes a little bit of a good judge of character on the, on the interviewer's end, right. Or the interviewee's end. Um, and then as well as don't be afraid to reach out to people that have, that are working for them already or have worked for them in the past. I mean, LinkedIn is a good tool. Um, you can, you can see where they've been, you can see some of the reviews about them. Um, but I would say, you know, ask work-related questions and work personal like questions. You know, like you're going to have to ultimately spend a lot of time with this person, and they're going to kind of control your fate one way or another. Um, so, I think you don't be afraid to ask questions. Obviously, you don't want to get too personal, but um, you know, ask what they're looking for in their reps. What do they expect? Um, what's been your history? What's your typical turnover? When? How do you tell? Uh, ask them how they deliver bad news, right? Like. When's the last time you fired someone? Like, how did that go? You know, so like I've had bosses that uh, in the past that like they're going to let you go, but they're passive aggressive. And you're like, hey, let's just, you know, let's just communicate this. It's not working out. It doesn't help either one of us. If I'm miserable and you're miserable, like just figure it out. So I think it's don't be afraid to ask them, you know, the right questions. That's so true. I mean, I mean, that's and that's what we train on is like the interview is a two way interview. They're interviewing you to mm -hmm. see if you're a fit. You're interviewing them to see if they're a fit. Is the leadership a fit? Mm -hmm. Is the product a fit? Is the culture a fit? Like th those are the things you got to dig in on big time. And you got to be you got to be real personable. And and the judge of character is huge. It goes both ways too. I totally one of the one of the reps I uh, the top rep I interviewed years ago. He he told me I was his hardest interview ever. Because he prepared for the interview, he knew everything that he was going to say. And the first thing I asked him is, "What are you doing this weekend?" And he said he didn't prepare for that, and he was like so caught off guard. And I, I just wanted to see if he was a normal person, you know? Like, yeah. really? it's kind of awkward when you get those questions. But too many times, I think in interviews, people they just revert back to numbers and the proper way to speak, and I don't think that translates too well in sales. No, I like. I always like to test the test the waters by swearing. I know it's like off the off the chain a little bit, or not everyone should do it. But 
you know, I'm not going to probably drop an F bomb, but like, you know, shit or something and just see how they react. I mean, like, yeah, shit, I can't hide who I am anyways. So right. it's either whether you like it or not, but I'm not going to fake it because if I fake it and I get there and it's like, well, they thought I was one person. I'm another. It's like, oh. Oh shit! I'm on my way out the door, anyways. Yeah. Right? Jr. So, told me he used to test people. Jr. What did you say he used to do? Like ask, like they're like, "What's up, psycho?" or something. Like, what was yeah, I, I would, uh, I would come in the room. I was the last step for AEs and BDR candidates at Turbo and commercial, and I would walk in the room and slap them up. I'd slap him on the back like a hello, and I'd be like, "What's up, you savage?" No matter who it was, just to see how they reacted, like just to see, like, can they handle themselves? Because that's to your point. To, that's who I am. Like that's how you know. Like I, I, I start every podcast with "What's up, kid?" I say "What's up, kid?" to my mom. I'm like, you know, my mom calls me. I'm like, "What's up, kid?" Right? Like you got to bring your authentic self to this to this career. Like it's probably one of the most important things, right? We talk about guys put their tech sales voice on and all of a sudden they're like very professional and oh you should see how we work with you know this api right it's like no like talk about it how you would talk about it with someone that you're friends with yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly put on the put on tech cool when did you get glasses i don't have glasses right and, you know you see that a lot 100 <laughs> percent uh, so you mentioned medic. Can you get, like, I'm curious, you, you know, you've been doing this a long time. You know how to close deals. Like what are, how do you approach the job? What are like the habits or like what you would describe as like the cornerstones of, of your approach to being a, a quota carrying senior account executive? Yeah, I think it's, um, very quickly become an expert in your own product, right? Like you got to do the homework, got to know the the competitive field or, or what what's out there and what's the key differentiator in your platform. Um, and it's not always easy. I think, you know, the current company I'm at, we're, we're still working this out. We're actually all out in Denver next week to even spend more time on this, but um, find out the key differentiators. Um, then you got to know who you're going to be selling to. So a lot of it is doing your homework and, and getting like getting that pitch out as much as possible in sort of a, a safe way. I think, as a senior account executive, I know I can maybe turn to a few people in my past at different companies and sort of get a feeler where I'm not, you know, it's not a sink or swim with them. I'm like, hey, I'm here now. This is my platform. What do you think? Um, and, and then sort of, you know, use the tools that you're given or ask for the tools that can make you productive. Uh, a big one for me, sales loft. Um, I'm just very... I like to do my work in bunches, at least a lot of my sourcing for, you know, prospecting. Um, so being able to leverage those tools um, and make sure you're, you're like Salesforce, whatever CRM you're using, make sure you, you spend a lot of time in there when you're a new AE to figure out, you know, who are the customers, look at the sort of the, the sales cycle and what it's taken to get them to be a customer, look at the conversations. And then ultimately I, I would, Sitting on some calls, or if you're now it's everything's recorded, so Zoom meetings and and get a feel for how other people are pitching it, and then try to create that story into my own. I think everyone kind of has their own way of of how their products, you know, came was evolved or why your company was founded. But put it into your own words, put it in your own spin, um, and be consistent with your prospecting. I think it's uh, it's a numbers game, we know. Um, but again, if you have the, the, the expertise or the knowledge of what makes your product different, it's, it's being persistent in, in trying to get in front of those right people. And when you do have that pitch dialed in and, and, and I always say lose as a team. Um, you're better off losing as a team than losing as an individual. So don't be afraid to ask for help around your organization. If, you need something, especially when it comes to the products, have, you know, your product manager come in for a meeting if needed. Um, you know, one of our founders is a, is a big time lawyer for open source. So when it comes to legal side of things, just don't be afraid to, to, to bring them in because if the worst you can do is, you know, you do your weekly sales meetings and asking how deals going, Oh, great, great, great. And then in, you get three weeks left of the quarter. It doesn't close and no one knows why, you know, so. Uh, being transparent is another key to being a, a senior AE. It, it doesn't. It doesn't surprise me that that team selling thing is is one of your like great habits because you talked about what you look for in a leader is somebody that isn't pointing at you and blaming you. When I when I was when I was running the team at Turbo, I had this thing on my desk. It was this big boat, 
and I had these these terracotta soldiers, and I had names on every terracotta soldier, and we would talk about a deal, and I would literally be like, "All right, how has marketing helped you?" And we'd put them on the boat. How has the channel helped you? How, have you brought in Ben, the CEO, or Mo, the CFO? Mm. Like, and and the analogy I would use is like, listen, you're, the deal is a boat. You're out in the water. It, it's either gonna it's either gonna sail or it's gonna sink. And the last thing you mm-hmm. want to do if it sinks is have somebody sitting on the beach and pointing the finger at you. If everybody's on the mm-hmm. boat and you lose the deal, it's a team loss. And that's that's like the best way to to approach managing a deal. So that dude, I love that. That's unreal. I like that. And and the pitch too, Cole. You're talking about like getting your product story down. Like you mentioned it a lot. And I think in sales, a lot of people who are new to sales are always like, okay, I have to learn the pitch. I have to learn this. I, but it's basically like, can you tell a good story? You know, are you a good story? Exactly. Right? And you two, I could sit on the couch at, you know, 38 Carol and listen to you two tell stories all night. So, I mean, <laughs> you might listen to me. I don't know if I can, you know, get a full sentence out, but I think, I think we can, all three of us can tell a good story, right? Like that's yeah. what it's all about. 100%. Yeah. Back then you couldn't really understand what we were saying, but I know what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) So you also mentioned, as I say, you guys clean it up. (laughs) Twisted tea here. So yeah, now we'll spend the next half hour talking about Cape Week and uh, what we were doing. Yeah, right. Uh, Not enough time in the day, John. I don't know if we're allowed back there, but, uh, so you you talked Cole, about other salespeople at companies that you can kind of reach out to, and mentorship's a big part of the podcast. We ask a lot of people about mentorship. So are there any mentors you've had in your sales career, and what have you learned from them? Yeah, I would say you know that that like my current boss John Shepard really has done a lot in them for me up to this point as being in a you know individual quota carrying person. I have managed some small teams here and there. Um, I'm really looking to take that next step with this company in the next few weeks here. So we'll see if it gets done. But, um, and then I'll be even more dependent upon him in terms of, well, how do you manage people? How do you like to manage people? And in doing more of the admin stuff that VPs got to have to do, right? Like the, the reporting, how do you talk to a board? Um, how do you interact with, you know, investors, that type stuff, uh, on a higher level? Um, is something I'm looking forward to. But yeah, John Shepard's definitely helped me a lot. I think the other thing too is I have, you know, a few friends in the, in this world as well. I know, you know, I, I'm, I have a pulse on what you guys are doing. I have a pulse on, you know, all my friends that are sort of, whether we're acquaintances now or, or teammates at one point, but anywhere in the software world, you know, it's very, we, we're, we're bouncing around here and there a decent amount. So hitting them up and just asking them, you know, why they made a move or what's going on, what are they seeing? Whether it's going from like data science was super hot, hot like five years ago when I was first getting into it or like seven years ago. And then it's moved more towards security and cybersecurity and, and, and sort of having a pulse on what's going on. But I think having a group of mentors um, is always important. And I kind of have um, different levels, right? So I have peers that I, I can kind of see as mentors or influencers. I have a boss that I would say has definitely been more of that. You know, when you think of the mentor definition, that as well as uh, the first job I ever had or or software job, the founder uh, is the CTO, this guy, Jeff Galino. He may be the smartest person I've like literally ever met. Like he makes Brent Franklin look like Pee Wee Herman, you know, like, uh, like he's this guy's just a genius. And he's also one of like the best sellers, too. So I, I lean on him a lot. Um, he's at Call Miner and they're doing really well, but I, I'll hit him up every couple of months and be like, Hey, what's going on? Um, and it, it's cool to see what he's doing and, and what he sees, but just speaking with him and talking with him about software in general or where it's going is, it, it's so educational and it, and it kind of motivates you to see what's next. I, I know we all get caught up in our, every, like our everyday job and it's cool that you guys are doing your own thing. But like when you're working for the man and you're, you know, you're trying to sell software and you're just pounding and it's not going well, it's very easy to pick up and like see what else, look over the fence, see what else everyone's doing. It's natural. Um, and I think it's healthy too. I think it's, you want to know what's going on because it either will motivate you. Um, I, I'm, you know, again, motivated by money. So you want to make as much as you can. Um, and to know what's working for other people, it may or not, may or may not work for you, but it doesn't hurt to know. 
you got to get comfortable talking about being motivated by money. And, and I, I, you know, it's, it's a little cliche in, in today's society, but like, listen, it, that's, you know, call it what it is. Mon money equals freedom. And that's what we all want. So, you know, you, you should be driven, especially if you want to get into sales to make as much money as possible. That should be one of the most important things to you. And that's just the reality of it. And, and if you are, you're going to do the right things, right? You're going to care about the customer. You're going to become an expert in your product. You're going to learn the right skills and habits because doing those things turns into a financial outcome, which is what's driving you. Yeah. Again, you, you work for the customer more than you work for your own employer, right? I think you want to make sure the next time you knock on that person's door for, to sell them something, um, you know, they're going to take your calls. Uh, everyone remembers who you are, right? When something bad happens and it's, you know, unfortunately I've, I've been on that, the bad end of that, right? You sold something and product told you they were going to put something on the roadmap or something was on the roadmap. It never gets delivered. Renewal comes around, you know, you're not getting that deal done. So it's, you got to work on behalf of your customer as well, too. Yeah, that's a you just gave me an idea. You just gave me an idea for a LinkedIn post. Thanks, Cobra. <laughs> and that was uh, that <laughs> yeah. was just to be clear. That was our first Pee Wee Herman shout out on the Merchants of Doom. So shout out Pee Wee. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so Diesel will appreciate it. <laughs> Love Pee Wee Herman. We got so we got two final questions, Cobra. I'll ask the first one, but we talk on the podcast a lot about. Um, skills that make a salesperson elite. So curious to know, what is your skill that makes you elite as a salesperson? Negotiating. Um, I, I can get a pulse if I'm part of a deal or I know what's going on. And as long as I've done my end of the job in terms of setting expectations and success criteria as we're going through the sales cycle, whether we're doing an evaluation or a POC or not, um, I'm pretty good at holding people accountable at the end and basically make getting a deal done um whether you got a day to get it done a week whatever as soon as we start talking all right we're interested um but you know the it, you this is usually before you get to procurement because that's a whole different type of negotiating um and frankly i love messing with procurement people like i know your job i know what you're, how you get paid right so it's like what are we doing here you're gonna you're not gonna be the one that de definitely says yes or no you're just getting the whatever but anyways I love negotiating. Um, and again, this is where you act on behalf of your customer too. If, if, you know, you're trying to get them to do a one year deal, but you, you know, you have a product that value really takes 12 to 24 months to go through, you know, be open to having that conversation. You know, make sure you ask them up front, you know, what's, what's your budget? What are you spending now? Here's what we expect to save you. Here's where, you know, ROI, like and just be comfortable with that and, and be confident. Um, and ultimately, I, yeah, I think you can get something done. It's again, you're usually selling twice, once to the line of business and once to procurement, but, um, I love getting everyone at the table and making sure everyone walks away thinking they, you know, they won the negotiation. That's a good negotiator. So Cole, I know I said two more questions, but I'm curious because you are a great negotiator in my opinion, outside of experience alone, life experience or sales experience. Any advice on how to get better at negotiating, like podcast books or any any kind of outside advice? Yeah, um, I think uh, what is it? The Jordan Belfort is the Way of the Wolf. That's a pretty good one to to read, right? I think I I wouldn't say I'm like cutthroat negotiator. I'm just very stern. Um, so I think I think hearing and listening to I, I'm not sure if I listen to too many podcasts besides I obviously listen to your, I listen to a lot of like. Um, I wouldn't say it's podcasts on my end. It's more reading books, like uh, like Ben Mesrick books, like sort of books that are interesting but do talk about business deals, yeah. um, like Moneyball or bringing down the house, like stuff like that. I think reading and just seeing the style. I mean, there is a book that are negotiating. I, I don't know. I think, but everyone needs to find their own style. But I think the best way to get good at negotiation isn't actually at the final table right it's setting up to be able to negotiate is is what i see negotiating right and what i mean by that again is when you're engaged with a prospect you're writing down and, and you're reiterating to them and showing them this is what you want or this is what you're looking for here's your pain this is how we're going to solve it and as soon as you check off that hey do you agree we solve that boom then you're in the right point place to start to ask for their business but don't be afraid to ask that's where i think I've seen the the sort of 
the mediocre sales reps, they're just okay with having meeting after meeting after meeting. And then, hey, let's go get someone from, you know, a different line of business in the organization, see if we get them to champion this. Whereas just ask for the business and, and then get to the negotiation table and you can almost always get something done. And, but that's why I like working at startups too, right? I think you should be like CFOs and the financial side of the house that you should be trying to get as many deals off the street as possible and then work on your business model around, you know, customer retention and, and, you know, ARR after that. But when you're first, you know, going to market with your, you should get as many logos as possible. And the negotiation piece should be pretty easy, right? So um, getting better at it just takes practice. Totally, totally. Um, all right, last question, buddy. And I know you, you got to run to Indian Pond, so we'll get through it quick. Um, we yeah, all, we're we, recording this on a Saturday morning, right? We're recording <laughs> this on a Saturday morning. Yeah, it's Saturday. You know, you got a great weekend <laughs> ahead of you. Um, <laughs> so so we, we always used to say, like, there's a lot of people that play hockey but there's not a lot of people that are hockey players, right? There's a difference between selling software and being a software sales professional. And we think that being a pro is the highest praise you can give someone. So last question, what what does being a pro in sales mean to you, Cole? Yeah, it's be, being adaptable, being agile, uh, being open-minded, smart, and being able to have an idea of how the sales cycle wants should go or, or how you expect it to go, but be able to move quickly when it doesn't go your way. Um, it's being persistent. Um, it's being willing to ask for help or, or it's also being able to say, I don't know. Um, but it's ultimately you do what it takes to get the job done. Don't tell me how rough the water is. Just get the boat in type deal. Um, and, and to be sort of like, you got to be likable. Uh, as a sales pro, right? No one wants an asshole on their team. Um, so uh, it's it's being able to work as an individual in it, within a team environment is what makes a, a real sales pro. I love it. Love, love it. it. Dude, a- awesome, awesome convo, Brian. Thank you. Good to see you. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This wraps up this episode of Merchants of Change. If you enjoyed this episode, the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in working with us, please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io.